Welcome to the podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. My name is Minnie Baragwanath, and this series is based on my book by the same name. Blindingly Obvious is my story. It is a candid and deeply personal story about my life and work as a blind woman, social entrepreneur, and innovator. I wrote it in order to share my experience of blindness with others and in the hope that it might raise awareness and invite others to actively create a more accessible future, one that is full of possibility. A wonderful voiceover artist and now friend of mine, Romy Hooper, has narrated my full book, all 24 chapters. I do so hope you enjoy listening. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to share it with you. 9. Living Outside the Square The Minister of Finance, Ruth Richardson, was seated in front of me. It was 1992, and the infamous Mother of All Budgets had been announced a year earlier by the national government. What on earth was I, Minnie Baragwanath, doing interviewing the Minister of Finance? Well, this was fairly typical of what happened at Kapiti TV in the early 1990s. My voluntary job had soon become a paid role with support from the local work bridge, an agency set up by the government to support employment opportunities for disabled people, and their job support fund. It was a little harder to neatly define just exactly what my role was. As is the case with any startup environment, everyone had their official title, but was actually required to lend a hand and pitch in on whatever needed doing. That is the joy and the privilege of startup environments. Although I now know this way of working does not appeal to everyone, I loved it. Looking back, we were a fairly motley crew at the station. I've often thought what a brilliant concept to base an actual TV or streaming show around. We had the XTVNZ cameraman and editor. We had the aging XTV star. We had the eager, naive and bright-faced young presenters, including myself. We had the local businessmen. And we had the two American executives who flew in periodically from the Canary Islands. They owned the entire operation. To add to all of this, we were also based at a place known as Lindale Farm on the Kapiti Coast. We were located just beside the now famous Kapiti Ice Cream Address, which was both a very tempting blessing and a curse. I can still remember their delicious combination of sweet white chocolate and tart raspberry. Yum. Kapiti Ice Cream and the TV station were positioned alongside a sort of toy farm, This was a place set up for overseas visitors to experience New Zealand farm life. There were sharing sheep shows and other riveting activities available every day to view. But this also meant that there was quite considerable wildlife free-flowing around the property. On the infamous day when I interviewed Ruth Richardson, not only could we not seem to get the camera angle right and therefore ended up with an extremely unflattering camera shot that went up her knee-length skirt, but an actual turkey found its way into the studio while we were recording. We thought nothing of a sheep wandering in, or any other small farm life for that matter. I enjoyed a lot of flexibility in my role as presenter, researcher, interviewer, editing assistant, coffee maker, or whatever. There were so few rules, and I loved it. With some blind ingenuity and trial and error, I eventually worked out a way that I could ask questions in an interview situation without feeling deeply self-conscious. Initially, I felt I had to hold the paper containing the questions, 
but that meant I could be obscuring my face. So I started writing key words as prompts in large black felt tip. I would then read the questions and key prompts over and over in my head to prepare and warm up. Then I hoped like hell that in the moment, I would not go blank out of nerves. I hoped I could just glimpse enough of the words on the paper on my knees out of camera shot to prompt me with the next question. I also worked out a way to present seamlessly to camera. As a presenter, you are required to look directly at and deep into the lens. I soon realized that as I was totally blind in the center of both eyes, I could feel reasonably confident that I was therefore looking down the barrel, as they say, when I could no longer see the camera in front of me. We did try teleprompt at one stage, but this was a definite no for me. Most sighted presenters would use this, but there was absolutely no way I could rely on it. The onus was on me to innovate if I wanted to pursue this particular path. Something about the can-do attitude of startup and the slightly cowboy nature of the entire operation made me feel comfortable improvising and just trying things out. I can also see now that there was a certain level of acceptance by those around me in doing things this way, which I'm very grateful for. I was starting to find a work environment as well as a role that aligned with me, Minnie, my passion, my interests, and my personality as well as my sight. This was huge. Years of speech and drama lessons as a child had also prepared me well for presenting and interviewing work. I would spend hours memorizing opening and closing pieces to camera. To this day, I can often memorize and deliver a script in a single take to camera. All the blind people I know also have an incredible ability to recall information. When you cannot rely on pieces of paper or quickly refer to notes in front of you, it is basic survival to find a way to store, file, and memorize bucket loads of information. I do not know if anyone has carried out a study into the parts of the brain that involve memory in blind people, but I would not be surprised if they are more developed than in the average sighted person. It is a simple survival strategy for managing in a highly visual world. Thankfully today, there is one important area where a lot of research has been carried out, looking into the enhanced skills of not just blind, but other people living with access needs. That is their incredible ability to think outside the square, to innovate and problem solve. This world has not been designed for, or let alone with, the access community, so we simply would not survive if we did not quickly learn ways to problem solve and negotiate our way around the inherently ableist, like racist or sexist, design of workplaces, community facilities, and, well, most environments. Necessity is absolutely the mother of invention. It is this inherent problem-solving ability and ability to innovate that sits at the heart of my work at the Global Centre of Possibility today. After many years of trying to find ways to fit into mainstream society, I ultimately decided to embrace the creativity of the access community and get on with helping to design our own future. This is the possibility approach and it was a skill I was actively honing and developing at Kapiti TV. Although I did not know it, I was laying the groundwork for my future life and work in social change. The parent company of Kapiti TV, Saturn Communications, was a cable TV network, the first in New Zealand. They, therefore, had a legal obligation to set up a community station. 
This meant that although we existed, we were a compliance tick box. We were not the main show, and therefore we were not very well resourced. I recall one day when we were putting together a wonderful story about a group of wheelchair users who had travelled to Egypt to sail down the Nile in a specially designed accessible vehicle that a local man, Sir Len Southwood, had designed. A group of men entered the studio and said they were here to repossess all our equipment as the bills had not been paid. I recall sitting with our lovely editor as she and I furiously tried to get as much finished as possible before the edit suite disappeared in front of us. We finished it in the nick of time, and I will always remember that the soundtrack for this piece was, you guessed it, Rolling Down the River, by Credence Clearwater Revival. One of the many shows we piloted was called Mini Mart. Each week we would set up a temporary studio down at the mall. I would interview shop owners at the local mall about their various products and services. It was hilarious and enormous fun. I got to meet all sorts of people and hear about their latest product or speciality. Sadly, however, this was not a great economic success for the station and did not continue long term. One show that did go for some time was my regular catch-up with the local MP, Roger Sowry. We would chat about all sorts of things, including local politics and just general chit-chat. My future as a probing, insightful CNN reporter was obviously well on its way. After some time working at Kapiti TV, I became aware that, although I was now working in the media, I wanted to learn more about the media, both practically speaking and also in terms of theory. A friend told me about an amazing new tertiary course that had started that year in Auckland, at the then Auckland Institute of Technology, or AIT. It later became today's Auckland University of Technology, or AUT. All through my life, I have consciously moved between work and study in order to ensure I keep growing and learning. I also really value the idea that we must apply our theoretical knowledge directly to the world around us. However, for many people with access needs, there is also a dark side to this dynamic. There is a risk and a proven downside to ongoing study because for many people, this has itself become the modern sheltered workshop. It can be a place where it is easy to get trapped into a lifetime of study because finding work is just too hard. These same people can then paradoxically run the risk of being overqualified for many roles and underprepared in actual workplace experience. Nonetheless, I decided to apply for the Bachelor of Communication Studies and was accepted for the following year in 1995. I was their first disabled student. I absolutely loved my new degree. It was the perfect mix for me of theory and practice. We covered economics, sociology, politics and communications theory. We also learnt about journalism, PR and working in radio and in TV. In our final year, we had to choose a major to specialise in. I chose television. Unfortunately, this did not go so well. Each year, only about 10 of the top students were accepted into the television major. It was without a doubt the most popular and the most competitive option. While I had the marks to get in, the head of TV refused to let me onto the programme. She could not see how someone who was blind could work in TV. She did not care that for some time I had already been doing so. I was astonished, and yes, yet again gutted. 
By now I was fully aware that short-sightedness is a condition of the mind and a profound lack of imagination, rather than a sight condition. And I was amazed at how many people in the world were indeed afflicted with this debilitating condition. Or to quote the Bible via my mother, there are none so blind as they who do not wish to see. To make matters worse, one of the reasons I had loved my time at AIT was the fact that in 1995, they were the most progressive university in the country in terms of support for disabled students. To my delight, a lot had changed for Access students since I had last studied in the late 80s. An extraordinary woman, Diana Murray, had set up the first ever centre in a tertiary setting for supporting students with access needs. Along with the wonderful Donna Rose Mackay from Dunedin, she went on to set up a nationwide network to support students with access needs across the entire country. It was called Achieve, and it still operates today. Diana Murray was and is an absolute angel. She has played a pivotal role in transforming the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of students over many, many years. Not only would she and her office offer practical support to students such as note-taking and reading, but she would often spend hours working with students and lecturers to innovate workarounds. She was always looking for new ways to ensure a sound outcome when they came across an access barrier in their field of study. This negotiation was not, however, always successful. The day I was told I could not do the television major, I left the meeting room to go and have a coffee and a rethink about my future. As I wandered off dejectedly, I happened to bump into the head of radio. Without knowing that I had just been turned down for TV, he said, Minnie, I hope you're going to do radio next year. We'd love to have you on our course. Well, to use that dreadful phrase, it was a no-brainer. I took radio and loved it. Funnily enough, since 1997, when I completed my degree with my major in radio, I've never actually worked again in that medium. I have, just for the record, worked for many years in television and film. When I moved to Auckland in 1994, I had also signed up with an acting agent. I was still keen to pursue opportunities to act in television commercials and TV series, and to do voiceover work to supplement my living costs as a student. One extremely memorable commercial was for a French cheese advertisement. It was filming in Queenstown because the French director wanted somewhere that resembled the Swiss Alps. And where better to do that than in the majestic southern Alps of New Zealand? It was late summer and the weather was stunning. Every day we had blue skies, golden sunshine and not a cloud in sight. We would travel to different locations around Queenstown and each one was utterly stunning and picturesque. No wonder so many international film crews came to film here. The light and the air quality is exceptional. One day we were all flown in a helicopter up to the top of a mountain. We were to spend the day filming on the very precipitous mountainside. By now, it was my policy not to tell people about my eyesight. I did not want to give anyone a reason not to employ me, so no one knew that they had a blind woman on board. While I did not come to any harm, more through luck than good management, I suspect, it was a very funny day. At the ripe old age of 27, I was in true French style playing the part of a mother to a 15-year-old girl, and the actress was only 12 at the time. The lead was a stunning Australian model in her 20s. We had these enormous rounds of cheese on a picnic table in front of us, 
and we had to eat it seductively every time the camera was on us. The only issue was that I could not tell when the camera was focused on me, so I just had to keep on eating and eating and eating, bucket loads of this rich, fatty cheese in the late summer sun. The gorgeous Australian model, on the other hand, could see when the camera was off her and would spit out mouthfuls of cheese onto the grass whenever she could. The director was obviously doing a considerable amount of cocaine at the time and periodically just downtrowed in the middle of filming. This was the peak of large-budget ads and the film industry was a place of absolute excess. The next day, somewhat hungover after the wrap party at a local bar, and feeling very ill after consuming an outrageous amount of fatty cheese, I decided to try out paraponting. We drove to the top of some cliffs near Arrowtown. The instructor told me what to do, then together we ran, and then jumped off the side of the cliff into the blue summer skies. It was breathtaking. We caught some exceptional currents and flew for what felt like hours, probably about 30 minutes actually, all around Arrowtown and Queenstown. I was starting to feel increasingly ill, but tried to ignore it as the experience was so incredible. I had always wanted to fly, and this was the closest I was ever going to get to that. When we eventually landed, I was so ill I had to lie on the ground for about an hour before I could get up and walk again. The instructor was not sympathetic once I told him I had consumed a couple, or more, glasses of wine the night before. As well as working on ads and other things to earn a living, I was also working hard to access my course content at AIT and to pass my papers. This time, I also, however, had set myself some additional challenges when I studied. I was now also very interested in learning about access and disability politics. My papers in sociology, economics and political studies had piqued my interest in access in an entirely new way. I noticed that all my lecturers did an admirable job of inviting us to think about the world from the point of view of various marginalised groups, including women, Māori, Pacific and refugees, etc. But it was shocking to me that at no stage were disabled people mentioned. Mind you, disabled people had only just been included in our human rights legislation in New Zealand. Four years earlier, in 1991. So perhaps it was not surprising. What is shocking is that the situation has not greatly improved today, in 2022. I started to use every opportunity I could to explore my papers in politics, economics, sociology and media theory from the point of view of an access citizen. I found it fascinating and confronting. I also realised that all my peers would soon be working in the media throughout New Zealand and possibly the world. I took it upon myself to create a short course to teach my peers about ways to report the stories of access citizens. This included what language to use, what not to use, and ways to frame up questions that would not sound patronising and ghoulish. It may have had little impact at the time, but my thinking was spot on. Today, several graduates from my year are in highly influential roles in the media, including Jeremy Wells, Newsboy and Caroline Roberts, amongst many others. I was starting to think in terms of social change. I was starting to identify key strategies to drive change. And one of the many things I now deeply understood was the power of media to set the agenda, to shape conversation, and to define the narrative for any important issue. 
The one assignment I remember most vividly from this time was during my radio major. I decided to interview a range of people about the impact of language. In particular, I wanted to know if it mattered which names, phrases and words we use in today's society to describe people with disabilities. Or should that be disabled people? Or differently able? Or should that be access citizens? I really wanted to challenge the belief that sticks and stones can break my bones but names will never hurt me. Patently a stupid saying, but one that has remained entrenched in our national psyche for many, many years. And whenever a minority dares to challenge the dominant narrative or language that the mainstream has assigned it, it is quickly dismissed, usually by talk show hosts as political correctness gone mad. I have come to realise that most people do not like to be challenged. Most people do not like to have their worldview or ideas questioned. I also think that many people also feel bad for getting it wrong. So instead of recognising we have it wrong, or that times have changed, we can become defensive and angry. We feel foolish and act out like a child instead of taking time to listen, to think, and to reflect deeply. This is always a choice we get to make, but sadly, we do not often make a good choice. One person I interviewed was my dear friend and colleague, Todd Fernie. Todd had cerebral palsy. He was one of the funniest, kindest, and in many ways, bravest people I knew. He was brave because of his honesty and willingness to share parts of himself openly with the world, even after the terrible ridicule he had experienced. He told me how he had regularly been called awful names throughout his life. He had been called crip, spastic, and stupid, and thick. What is awful about this is that it was his teacher at school who was calling him these names. He told me how this affected his self-worth, his self-image, and of course his mental health too. Todd lived with what at times became debilitating depression. Ten years later, Todd committed suicide. He was just the first of many friends and colleagues with access needs to do so over the years to come. Disabled New Zealanders have one of the highest suicide rates of any group in our society. Yet this is totally underreported. Words matter enormously. With our words, we get to cast spells around us, and we get to choose whether they are a curse or a blessing. This is actually partly why I have chosen to write this book myself. After years of very well-intended press releases and articles in various media, I have decided that I have to be in charge of my narrative once and for all. With all the good intention in the world, no one else was ever going to be able to express what I needed to say with my voice and with my words. However, not everyone will have the opportunity to write their own story, so the onus is still very much on our media, our leaders and our key spokespeople to choose language very carefully and to understand the power of language to either open up possibility or, in the most extreme instances, to actually destroy people's lives. And in today's world, with social media in the mix too, it is even more important that we understand the words we choose to use. After graduating with my second degree, I wondered what work might be available to me. I caught up with a couple of friends who had also just graduated with various degrees. To my shock, after congratulating his daughter on her degree and celebrating the many opportunities that might now be available to her work-wise, 
My friend's father, in all seriousness, went on to ask me what I would do next. Would I now be a switchboard operator, like other blind people? This was 1997, and this was the only thing he could think of for blind people to do. Sadly, even to this very day, he is not alone in this kind of limited and deeply unimaginative thinking when it comes to the employment options for blind women. Thankfully, our old family friend, Jan Beringer, whom I had lived with all those years before in Wellington, had a much more inspired idea. She connected me with an amazing woman, a filmmaker, a documentary maker, and perhaps more importantly, someone with a genuine and wonderful commitment to equity. Shirley Horrocks employed me, and our exciting work together in media and social change began. Together, we would tell the contemporary stories of Access Citizens in New Zealand, and yes, around the world, for years. How lucky was I. I do so hope you enjoyed listening to my book and podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. It has been an absolute privilege to be able to share this with you. Listen out for the next chapter, coming soon. If you would like to purchase the entire book in audio or an array of other accessible formats, including New Zealand Sign Language, or to learn more about my work, visit my website, minib.co.nz. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to be with me. See you next time. With love, Minnie B.